Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be discussing one of the most prolific horror writers of the modern era, and that is Stephen King, who is a New York Times best-selling novelist. Across the table from me, I have Jason Creekmore. Jason, how are you doing this evening? I am ready to dive into some Stephen King. I love me some Stephen King. So you're a big fan? I'm a pretty big fan. I'm excited. This is going to be good. So just some general notes on Stephen King. He was born on September 21st, 1947 in Portland, Maine. And we're going to find out that a lot of his fictional narratives actually take place in Maine, although in fictional towns and cities. But the cool thing is there's a lot of overlap between some of the various novels and stories that he tells. He graduated from the University of Maine with a degree in English, and some reports say that he actually worked at a laundromat for a little while (laughs) while he was working on becoming a school teacher. Now, he did work as a teacher for a while while he was establishing himself as a writer, and as of today, his books have sold more than 350 million copies worldwide and have been adapted into many successful films. So, Jason, have you seen any of these movies? I have seen several of them. Uh, I've, I've not read all, you know, all of uh, all the books, and I've not seen all the movies, but I've seen my fair share and probably a little more. Yeah, and and, I, and overall, overall, I'm a big fan. It seems like there's so many movies, at least when I was younger, that I didn't even realize were connected to Stephen King. Oh, I didn't either growing up. But they were so iconic. And when I got a little bit older and actually went into English myself and started studying the background of some of these stories, I realized, wow, they're, they're traced back to this one guy, this Stephen King. So he has his beginnings, as all great writers do. And Stephen King actually published his very first novel in 1974, and it was a novel called Carrie. Carrie was published when Stephen King was actually very down on his luck. And he and his wife, Tabitha, were living in a trailer, and he was writing from a portable typewriter that belonged to his wife. He originally wrote Carrie as a short story, and it was intended for publication in a magazine called Cavalier. But after he wrote about three pages, he threw it in the trash bin. (laughs) And I understand what that feels like. I've written some things throughout my lifetime, and it never fails, Jason. When you come to the end of something as a writer— you always start to second guess yourself, and you seem to be your own worst critic. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's definitely the case. Yeah. And this was true of Stephen King as well. So he wrote three pages of Carrie, the very first scene, which has become so iconic when she first discovers her telekinetic powers. And he just threw it in the trash can, and he, at that point, decided, I'm not going to do anything else with this. I'm just going to move on. But lo and behold, his wife believed in him quite a bit, and she retrieved the story pages from the trash, and she encouraged King to finish the story. My, my wife does that with the weed eater. <laughs> she encourages me to like, you know, you can do better. Yeah. I have faith in you here. So at the end of <laughs> mowing the grass, you just kind of throw the weed eater down. That's right. I've tried multiple times, and but she, your wife believes she in continues you. to have faith in me. <laughs> So Carrie tells the story of a young girl named Carrie White. Uh, She's very unpopular. She's bullied in high school. But as most of these stories go, she discovers that there's something special about her, a unique gifting. And she has these powers that enable her to move things 
with her mind. And one of the most iconic scenes from Carrie is the prom scene. Do you remember this? Because there was oh, yeah. a movie adaptation with Sissy Spacek, yeah. and this is just such a memorable scene. That's sort of the, scene big, in that's the, the big scene, yeah. This is the one that I always think about when I think of this movie. So Carrie is invited to the prom, and unfortunately for her, the election is rigged. Keeping in mind, she's very unpopular. She has a lot of bullies at the high school that she attends. And the bullies work it out so that Carrie is actually named prom queen. And at the moment of the coronation, Carrie's bully rigs up this bucket of pig's blood and just kind of dumps it on Carrie. And it's just this most grotesque, morbid thing. And I think in the book, the uh, prom king, who was actually standing next to Carrie, gets hit in the head with this bucket and he dies from that. So it's a very iconic, very memorable, very morbid. Uh, but the thing is, when everyone sees Carrie just drenched in this blood, they just start laughing at her. And this sets off an <laughs> emotional <moves>. reaction. <laughs> Not good to, to be laughing at the girl who just discovered that she can move buildings with her mind. So in a fit of rage, she uses her powers to get revenge on her tormentor. She runs outside and she, in just a fit of passion, she locks all the doors of the building of the high school and she sets off several systems that ultimately create a fire within the building and very few escape. She uh, actually burns the building to the ground. And in this fit of frustration, she starts walking through this fictional town of Chamberlain, Maine. So if you remember, we talked about Stephen King oftentimes likes to write about these fictional towns in Maine. One very famously that we'll talk about in a minute is Derry, Maine. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot you of that several, several times. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of his stories draw on this particular town. But after she seals off the gym and kills everyone inside, she starts walking down the street back toward her house. And as she's going, she's cutting power lines. She's blowing up gas stations and <laughs> she's just causing mass hysteria and havoc across this town. So she finally returns home and she confronts her mother. Living in this house is Carrie and her very religious mother, and the two of them do not get along very well. And when Carrie expresses to her mother that she f- has found this new power inside of her, her, her mother immediately becomes very distressed, and uh, she says, well, it must be the act of the devil. So they get into this heated argument, and the mother, who's named Margaret, attacks Carrie with a knife and stabs her in the shoulder. Carrie, again, in a fit of passion, uses her telekinetic ability to stop her mother's heart. So it's a very sad scene. Uh, I, I think Stephen King actually reflects on this one, and he reminisces that there wasn't a lot of hope in this story, and it, it's one that he thought wouldn't do very well. He thought it wouldn't be very successful because the thematic elements here are if you're different, then you're going to be ostracized and ultimately you're going to destroy things. You have to retaliate. Yeah, it's 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 really a, just a sad story. Yeah. I mean, from beginning to end. It is. So it actually ends with Carrie dying from the stab wound. And uh, one of the final things she does is she calls out for her mother, which is, again, just very sad scene. And uh, the town itself at this point has been completely obliterated by Carrie's powers, and she dies herself. Now, the interesting thing about this book is very similar to the book Dracula, uh, which is written in sort of newspaper clippings and journal entries and those sort of things. Carrie has that element as well. And at the end of the story, there's something called the White Report, And this is a scientific 
investigation into what happened in the fictional town of Chamberlain. And at the end of the White Report, the scientists conclude that this was an isolated incident. This is never going to happen again. But that's not how the novel ends, because the very next and last letter within the book is a letter from a woman to her sister. And she's very excitedly saying, my baby was just born and she has telekinetic powers just like her grandmother did. So it's sort of this setting up that the story could go on and that there's other beings within this fictional universe who are able to have these powers and act on Hmm. the world in supernatural ways. So the book was really successful, Jason. It it really made King very, very wealthy (laughs) at the time, at least in the sense that he was kind of getting things kicked off and he was starting to come into his own. And if you remember, I told you that he was living in a a trailer at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Well, he actually had his phone disconnected at the time that he found out, or rather at the time the publisher was going to tell him that Carrie was going to be picked up and published. So he had no phone. And this was obviously prior to the days of the internet. So his publisher had a hard time getting up with him. And eventually he ended up sending him a telegram. And the editor's name was William Thompson. And the telegram simply read, Carrie, officially a Doubleday book. Doubleday is the name of the publishing house. $2,500 advance against royalties. Congrats, kid. The future lies ahead. Man, what words. Man, I bet he was <laughs> like, those were, that was a welcome, welcome message. Absolutely. I that. that's, he he that's probably cool. rushed out and thought, I'm going to get a telephone. Right? Yeah. I mean, that, that, you know, that will uh, one day be in a museum, no it, doubt. Absolutely. So what he actually bought, though, with the advance <clears throat> money was a brand new Ford Pinto. And I well, can just see go. him cruising up and down the streets celebrating his success with Carrie. And a month later, after he found out that Carrie was going to be published, New American Library, which was a bigger publishing house, bought the paper book rights for $400,000, which was split between King and Doubleday. So he ended up with about half that at $200,000. Wow. Uh, his original publisher got $200,000. And when it actually seen print and came out in hardback, it was kind of disappointing at first. It sold 13,000 copies, which in my eyes, I'd love to sell 13,000 copies of something. Uh, But it wasn't until a year later when the paperback came out that it sold 1 million copies in its first year and really solidified Stephen King as one of the great horror writers of our time. That's the the, the one million is the magic number. It is. (laughs) When you cross one million, you've done something. But, you know, I'd settle for 500,000, too. That'd be fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. So moving past Carrie, we have a book called Salem's Lot. And, Jason, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, absolutely. Salem's Lot was King's second book, and it was published in 1975. And and coming off the heels of Carrie, uh, when this was published uh, shortly thereafter, his career just continued to soar. Salem's Lot is about a young uh, writer named Ben Mears who returns home to his small town to confront a horrifying event that he saw as a child at what is called the Marsden House. And the Marsden House was this huge home that sat up on a hill and overlooked the entire town of Salem's Lot. However, after returning home and wanting to gain access to the house, Mears learns that it has been rented out by a man named Kurt Barlow and his associate. Now, these two gentlemen were new to the town and moved to Salem's Lot to open a, an antique shop. So you know, it seems seems simple enough, yeah. right? Just you know, a couple of entrepreneurs. Right? Sure, yeah, just yeah. trying to make a just, way for themselves. Yeah, that's right. Nothing weird there. No. Well, yeah, there was something weird. There, <laughs> <laughs> there was something very weird there. 
it doesn't take long before a, a lot of strange things uh, begin happening. People start to disappear. Some are murdered. Uh, others are stricken with a sudden illness. Later in the book, Ben and a young boy discover that in actuality they are dealing with vampires. After that, the fight is on as the living and the dead battle it out for control of the town. And were these normal vampires, Jason, like we see in movies and books such as Twilight? These, No, these were not your uh, beautiful People magazine vampires that, that glisten. You know, These are the ones that uh, crawl out of the earth and they look dead. <laughs> it's, it's those kinds of vampires. So sunlight doesn't make them sparkle? It's, or no, anything. it makes them burst. Okay. <laughs> it, definitely, it does kind of make them sparkle just for a moment. Yeah, you know? yeah. The director of, of the movie, uh, Salem's Lot, and, and actually that, that's a difference. I'll talk about this in a second. But you know, the uh, one of the big differences was that the director wanted to highlight this idea of the of the grotesque type yeah. of vampire, you know, as opposed to this romanticized, you know, talking to the ladies with a rose and <laughs> you know and that type of thing. So, yeah, yeah. Going back to the early days you know, of the rippers, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, going back to like the fifties with. Uh, you know, Bella Lugosi and 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 mm-hmm. all through the decades, it was more the the European vamp, you know, castle type of vampire, and so this was obviously different. Salem's Lot features a very common trope that King uses in many of his novels, and that is the concept of a stranger comes to town. We see this in the novel Needful Things, as well as the as the uh, screenplay Storm of the Century, and we definitely see it in Salem's Lot. In this specific case, it is a vampire who comes to town. But in other books, it's the devil in one and an ancient wizard in another. The commonality is that a stranger shows up to a peaceful, small community and then terrorizes all the citizens, oftentimes turning them against one another. This is for sure true in Salem's Lot, as the mysterious Mr. Barlow shows up and moves into the biggest, creepiest, most iconic house in the community, and literally looks down on his prey from the top. Isn't that how it always happens? The the vampire is always situated at the top of the oh, hill yeah. in the haunted mansion yeah, overlooking like, the ooh, town. Ooh, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Just yeah, kind of like laughing that. at everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was the case here. Salem's Lot also features the theme of community. Uh, like in the novel Under the Dome, uh, which is also a, a miniseries several years ago uh, on TV. It's a very, very good book. Also a Simpsons movie, right? Uh, yeah. You yeah. ever see the Simpsons movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah. Uh, and also, again, the screenplay, uh, Storm of the Century, community plays a significant role in the development of the storyline. In this example, the community must band together to save their beloved town. Oftentimes, in King's novels, communities are small and close-knit. Everyone knows each other. This makes relationships uh, among characters even more important. And a few interesting points uh, about the, the book slash movie. For the movie, the original director was George Romero, who also directed Night of the Living Dead in, in, in the 60s. But soon after the uh, production started, Romero opted out and was replaced with Toby Hooper from uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame. Okay. And it was Hooper who wanted to have, you know, to bring back the the ugly vampire, right? Sure. And not yeah. the not the uh, glorified type vampire. So that could have been a completely different movie could with have George been. Romero. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the original name of the book was Second Coming, which I thought was very odd, but yeah, King eventually weird. changed the title uh, before publication. 
And then again, like I talked about, you know, in the book, the main vampire, uh, Barlow, was a distinguished, well-spoken, you know, older type gentleman. But in the movie, Barlow was this grotesque and, and evil-looking figure. And Hooper did not want a good-looking vampire. You know, he wanted an awful creature that was just simply difficult to look at. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the premise uh, of how he made the movie. So the, the the novel and the movie are very similar, but there are some subtle differences. So, Shannon, what Stephen King treasure do you have next? <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about one that absolutely terrified me as a child. And it wasn't until years later that I actually read the novel. But when I saw the movie of Pet Cemetery, the original, <laughs> yeah, man, I had many a sleepless night. I think I was way too young when I saw this movie. Um, and But anyway, the novel came out in 1983. And Stephen King actually had the idea for this novel much earlier on. So in 1979, he was a writer in residence at the University of Maine. And the house he was renting was next to a road that was very busy. It was a highway where trucks and cars were often (laughs) speeding up and down the road. And if this sounds familiar to you. Yes, I see where this is going. (laughs) This is uh, related to one of the scenes that King would eventually write that gave me terrors for many, many years. So uh, living next to this highway, he often saw that dogs and cats would get in harm's way of all these trucks and cars that were speeding by. And it was later that his daughter's cat was actually killed by one of these trucks. And he explained to his daughter what happened. They buried the cat. And then all of a sudden he had this epiphany. Hey, I'm going to write this book called Pet Cemetery." And you know, one thing that has troubled me over the years as well. I guess it doesn't so much anymore. But the spelling of cemetery there, you know, it's different, right? It's not spelled correctly. And dating all the way back to when I first watched this movie, you know, I used to go to video rental places a lot and I would see the title Pet Cemetery right there um, on the shelf. And I remember later in school, I would go back and, you know, I'd be writing my own stories and things, sometimes inspired by Stephen King, and I spelled cemetery wrong. <laughs> Just because, <laughs> because yeah. I didn't know, you know, yeah. I saw it spelled that way, and I thought that must be the way it's spelled. Yeah. And for a long time, that's exactly how I wrote it. If I was writing any sort of fiction, oh, I, I or can easily anything see else. that because I've I've noticed that, like on the book and the in you know in the name, you pick up the the cover of the uh, the movie or whatever, and. It's like it's like I see that it's misspelled, but I don't but I don't see it. Yeah, it's like somehow that's just oh yeah, that's also correct. Right, <laughs> somehow. Yeah, and I've not seen the word cemetery very often anyway printed out anywhere except yeah. for here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, so Pet Cemetery was a retelling of a short story by W. W. Jacobs titled The Monkey's Paw. Oh yeah, I didn't make this connection, Jason, but I used to be an eighth grade English teacher, and. In my eighth grade class, I would often teach The Monkey's Paw, and it wasn't until I was studying out this particular episode that I realized the connection there. And this story, The Monkey's Paw, is absolutely terrifying. And just in brief, essentially, it's about a family who comes in contact with a severed monkey paw, and it has supernatural powers, and they get three wishes. Now, whenever they make their first wish, they're not taking it too seriously. They don't think that it's going to do anything. So I think they wish for something like a thousand pounds, you know, which is a form of currency. And it's a day later 
that someone shows up at their door. It's like you said, the stranger comes to town, right? Right. Someone shows up at their door and knocks, and they come in with very bad news. And the news is that their son has been killed, but, oh, here's a 1,000 pounds uh, to pay for the funeral and the accident and, you know, all those sort of things. So the family realizes that, oh, this is an actual thing. Yeah, this, <laughs> you know, this, is, this is not how we wanted this. This right, is right. not how we wanted this. And, you know, it's very similar to Pet Cemetery uh, in a sense that we're going to find out. So in Pet Cemetery, Lewis Creed, a Chicago doctor, moves to Maine with his wife and his two children. And a neighbor tells Lewis to be careful around the highway. So very early on, Stephen King starts to foreshadow hey, there's something about this highway that you need to be wary of. And it runs right next to the house. He mentions the speeding trucks, again, drawing from the background of the road he used to live next to. And his neighbor's name is Judd Crandall. And he takes Lewis and his wife on a walk in the woods behind their home. You know, just kind of giving him the tour, right? He's new to the neighborhood. Let's be nice. Yeah, let's be nice. Let's go see what's going on around this uh, Stephen King environment. And they follow a path that leads up to a cemetery, and emblazoned right there on the sign, it just says Pet Cemetery with the misspelling and all. So, you know, we don't think too much about this at first. We just think, oh, someone's created a pet cemetery maybe for their kids or whatnot, and it's still here. Great. Let's go home and enjoy this new environment we're in. Well, on Halloween... Uh, Judd's wife, the neighbor, suffers a near-fatal heart attack. And you have to remember, Lewis, our main character, just happens to be a doctor. That's that's convenient. Convenient enough. So he saves her life, and Judd, the neighbor, is very grateful. And obviously he's one of these wise old characters who knows more than he's letting on. And he wants to repay Lewis um, for what he did to, to save his wife. So it turns out that the family also has a cat. And the cat's name is Church. And unfortunately, Church meets his demise on the road sometime (laughs) around Thanksgiving, uh, you know, again, foreshadowing the gruesome event that will occur later, which we're getting to. But it's something that still gives me shivers to this day, especially uh, since I have daughters of my own at this time. But Lewis's wife and kids are away. So Judd, you know, seeking to repay Lewis, takes him up to the pet cemetery, supposedly to bury the cat, right? He thinks, well, we're just going to bury this cat. We'll do a good deed and we'll move on. But what happens is they actually pass up the cemetery and Judd reveals the real cemetery. It's an ancient burial burial ground that was once used by the Mi'kmaq tribe. The cat is buried and returns resurrected. That's the whole purpose of the cemetery. But Judd, the neighbor, warns before this occurs that anything that's buried there doesn't necessarily return as it was put into the ground. It comes back almost with like an evil spirit. So later when the family gets back home, um, you know, they start to deal with the cat. The The little girl takes her, takes the cat back up to her bedroom. They comment that the cat smells like death, which, yeah, it does. <laughs> that's, that's a good reason. <laughs> right. I, I was always interested to know exactly what, and I don't recall this from the novel, but what Lewis actually told the, <laughs> the little girl, right? Because... Obviously, when she left, the cat was dead. She comes home. The cat's back. It stinks of death. (laughs) Uh, We were wrong, honey. (laughs) Yeah, it did. You know, the cat wasn't dead. Uh, So anyway, they end up going on with their lives for a little while. And then the iconic event of the novel occurs when Lewis's two-year-old son is killed by a speeding truck on the highway. And Lewis is overcome with grief 
and he carries out a plan to bury his son in the cemetery. And this is where all of his struggles and woes begin. The son does return to life, but he's not how they used to remember him. He comes back as an evil entity, speaking differently, walking differently. He's not the kid that they used to know. <laughs> he had some weird eyes. Too. <laughs> yeah, he was a strange <laughs> he had thing some that strange returned. Eyes, yeah. So the kid kills both Judd the neighbor and also his own mother, Lewis's wife. So Lewis has to confront his son and send him back to the grave. And being a doctor, he does this through lethal injection of chemicals. And it's just a heartbreaking scene. I mean, this is another one of those novels that Stephen King really didn't want to publish, quite honestly, because of the depressing thematic elements, that there's really no hope and uh, nothing is able to prevail in, in light of this darkness. So Lewis decides that, you know, after he stops his son, he wants to bring his wife back. So he takes her up to the cemetery, and he rationalized this, Jason, in his mind by saying, well, the reason it didn't work with my son is because we left him in the grave too long, right? We didn't take him directly to the pet cemetery or the cemetery behind the pet cemetery, which he does with his wife. And he, he buries her there. And very famously, he, he goes back down to his house. Uh, he sits down at the table. And this is something that plays out in the movie as well and just freaks me out <laughs> to this day, very much like the, the monkey's paw. Um, but in the final scene, Lewis is sitting at the kitchen table. He's playing solitaire, and his wife's corpse enters the room. He doesn't even turn around. He doesn't look at her. Uh, she places her hand on his shoulder, and her voice just rasps out the word, darling. And that's sort of the end of the story. And that scene from the movie has always stuck with me for years and years. I can just see that wife coming back. And I think the difference between the book and the movie that I remember, and I could be wrong about this because it's been a while since I've seen or read either, but I think the book leaves it a little bit more ambiguous as to whether the wife returns normally or not. Whereas the movie makes it fairly obvious. It seems like I remember that the wife actually picks up a kitchen knife. I, I think so. I think that's right. Yeah, as she's coming up behind Lewis, and it sort of still ends on that cliffhanger. But you know what's that kitchen going. knife right. about? Yeah. Right. <laughs> what's, what's she doing? Uh, so King considers Pet Cemetery his most frightening book, and he actually thought he'd gone too far by writing it. He almost didn't publish it. Uh, but one thing that actually pushed him to finally publish uh, Pet Cemetery is that when he transitioned to his new publisher, he still owed his old publisher, Doubleday, you remember the one oh, yeah. that published Carrie, he owed them one final book. And he didn't have anything written. I think at the time he was working on Christine, which he remarked he liked a lot better <laughs> than Pet hmm. Cemetery. Um, but he dug Pet Cemetery out of the drawer and he gave it to Doubleday. <laughs> now, during this time, uh, one source said that Stephen King didn't promote the book very much. Uh, whenever it was being published, he didn't give any interviews, he didn't give any press releases. But Doubleday really built it up. You know, they really poured into the advertising and the marketing for this book. And the fact that Stephen King was almost absent from the entire process added to the mystique, you know, oh, the yeah. mystery of what was going on with that book. And basically it skyrocketed in sales uh, for that very reason. And one thing that was noted by King is that he's haunted by the book's most memorable line. And Judd, the neighbor says, sometimes Lewis dead is better. And yeah, that's, 
<laughs> there's, I don't know, there's like a sense of finality to that. It's, that just doesn't sit well. It doesn't. It's <laughs> it's so make, it makes you ominous. squirm. Yeah, yeah. And this really ties together the thematic element of Pet Cemetery, I think, very well. And in some cases, at least in this fictional world, yeah, dead certainly yeah. is better. And Jason, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you for a discussion about The Shining. Okay, can you handle The Shining? I'm not sure. I don't know. Well, let's 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 just. Uh, I'm going to put this on, and you see if you can take care of this. Let's okay. see if you can t- take it home. Here. I'll let you know at the end. All right. All right. One of Stephen King's most memorable novels uh, is definitely The Shining. This book is just intense from beginning to end, and explores a wide range of themes. Published in 1978, uh, The Shining is about the Torrance family who moves into the Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies for the winter in order to serve as caretakers. It doesn't take long before the family begins to experience supernatural events as if the hotel itself is alive. The father, Jack Torrance, is an intriguing character because he is genuinely not a good guy. The book makes clear that he has an anger problem where he once actually broke his son's arm and also suffered from alcoholism. Once at the hotel, the isolation and the lack of accountability to society leads to his true self emerging. In his weakened state, he was more prone to the evil from the hotel affecting him. There are tons of interesting events in the story from the little boy Danny and the famous Red Rum to the creepy twin little girls at the end of the hallway. But long story short, Jack Torrance goes insane and tries to kill his wife and son. He begins to see and hear people from the past who had once stayed at the hotel, serving as caretakers just as he is. All of these spirits have the same message, kill your family. So Shannon, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wouldn't take that advice. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> that sounds like the wrong road to go down I, in a I, Stephen King novel. I, th- I think so. I think so. But unfortunately, he does not listen to that advice. Uh, thankfully, his wife and son make it out alive. Uh, in the novel, Jack Torrance actually dies in the fire after the boiler explodes and burns down the hotel. In the movie, directed by Stanley Kubrick, Jack freezes to death outside by getting lost in a maze while trying to murder his son. And, uh, you know, of course, in the movie, that's that's one of the, the, the major images you know, at the end is just his, you know, frozen body there, just that the wild look he has on his face. I remember that. Know. That's That was used in a lot of promotional material. Oh, yeah. One theme that truly stands out in the story is simply that of the past and the difficulties uh, mankind has overcoming their past. Just as Jack himself cannot overcome his past demons of anger and alcohol, it's as if the hotel can also not overcome its violent past. It seems as though it is destined to prey upon more families time after time, generation after generation. And while Stephen King certainly had disagreements with the movie adaptation of his novel, most critics agree that the movie is a masterpiece. From the opening scene of the car winding around the curvy roads and that hypnotic music playing, to the hotel's carpeted hallways, to Red Rum, and to Jack Nicholson chopping down a door and saying his famous line, here's Johnny. Hmm. The Shining just makes its viewers uneasy from beginning to end. When watching the movie, you do so with a mild sense of of dread and and, uh, anxiety. At certain times, you are nervous, and at other times, you are genuinely frightened. But at all times, you are entertained. Uh, And that's why The Shining has to be 
one of the most significant works of Stephen King. So any any additional thoughts to the to the Shining? I know you've read that book and you're a, you're a big fan of that. So yeah, the the book and the movie have a place in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, as with other Stephen King works, this is one that's absolutely terrifying and for, for a number of reasons. You talk about the Overlook Hotel, and the hotel itself actually is almost like a character in oh, this absolutely. novel. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It, it yeah. comes to life, and it almost seems like it's the hotel itself that's calling out to Jack Torrance and telling him to do all of these evil and sadistic things. And I, I think, am I right? Is there a sequel to this now, Doctor Sleep? Uh, yes, the, the the book came out a few years ago. Uh, yeah, and the name of it's Doctor Sleep, uh, and it's uh, it's Danny all grown up. So it's his son, the little boy who's grown up. Sure. And of course, uh, the movie is getting ready to be released. Oh, I so, didn't know that. Yeah, I forgot the the month. Maybe maybe this month or November, but it's pretty soon. It's it's coming out pretty soon. Yeah. Oh wow! And it's yeah. called Doc, Doctor Sleep, and and you're totally right. When when I when I think of the movie The Shining, or when I see that on paper before I think, I mean, honestly, before I think even Stephen King or before I think Jack Nicholson or before I think the little boy, uh, I think the hotel. Yeah. That's the first thing that I think of is that hotel and everything else is secondary to that hotel. You know, to me, mm-hmm. that is the shining is, is what's at the hotel. And, and I know that the little boy has powers and there's some other characters in it and a lot of things happening, but it, it's all about that hotel. I mean, it is. That's what you're thinking about when you're thinking, or at least I do when you're thinking about the shining. Yeah. And then there's just that sense of isolation. I remember in the novel that this snowstorm blows in and absolutely seals off the place. And yeah. that adds to it's that total sense isolation. Of, yeah. yeah being alone, being afraid, and only having your family to rely on. And unfortunately, in this sense... One of them's crazy. <laughs> one of them has an axe and is <laughs> coming through the door. That's so. right. One of them's coming to get you. Well, that I think that's all I have for The uh, the Shining. So, Shannon, I'm going to throw it back to you. And what do you have uh, up next on the Stephen King anthology here tonight? Well, I have one of King's most notable works, uh, and it's one that's come into prominence here in the last few years because there's actually recently been a movie remake, and uh, it is It, the movie, uh, and the, the novel, which was originally published in 1986. And It was King's 22nd book, but it was the 17th written under his own name. And this might be a good time to mention that Stephen King had a pseudoname that he actually wrote under in the late 70s, early 80s, because there was a time period when two things were going on with Stephen King. Number one, he was writing a lot, and he was writing so much that he was able to release two novels a year. So he talked to his publisher, and King seemed to be of the mind that his fans would not accept more than one book a year because that wasn't very typical. So he invented this pseudoname, uh, Richard Bachman, and he started releasing his books under that name. And as well, one of his other reasons for using that name was so that he could see if he could replicate his success because all great authors and people who do great things often question themselves, don't they? they? They say, was I just in the right place at the right time? Could I replicate this if I was uh, Stephen King today, but, you know, Joe Jones tomorrow, would people still pick the book up? Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, did just that. Yeah. You know, Joe Hill, uh, which is Stephen King's son, you know, he published uh, several books, uh, one of which is, and you may mention this maybe in a few minutes, is uh, Nosferatu. Sure, yeah. And I think that was maybe a a TV series on maybe Netflix or, or something like that. 
And uh, but anyhow, he, he did not want to, uh, from what I understand, you know, publicize that King name. Right. He wanted to kind of stand on his kind own. Make his see. own way. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, I think Stephen King's other son, Owen King, is yep. actually a writer in his own right, and his wife as well, which we mentioned previously. So a lot of writing talent in that family. Regarding it, this book is an absolute doorstop. Jason, have you ever seen this thing on the shelf? <laughs> yeah, I, I picked it up. Uh, Twice, and I burned, I think, a thousand calories. <laughs> you get some exercise <laughs> yeah. lifting this uh, ton of bricks. It's 1,400 pages. It, it's essentially two books in one, you know, because yeah. it's told from the two different per, uh, perspectives. But the novel follows seven children in the fictional town of Derry, Maine, where a lot of Stephen King novels are set. And they're terrorized by an evil entity who exploits the fears of of its victims. And the first part of this story occurs during the years 1957 and 58. And very famously, it, the character, primarily appears as Pennywise the Dancing Clown to attract young children. And a very iconic imagery when you think about the miniseries. Do, do you remember the miniseries that was based on oh, yeah. It when it came out? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And that was you know, that was freaky. I mean, there was just something about the way that the, the clown would dance. And most of the time it kind of seemed harmless, but you knew it was just an absolute you know, total monster. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that series was just genuinely just kind of give you the creeps at, at all the times. And it just had this... You could almost taste it. It was just like so. <laughs> it was so scary, and there, yeah. there was just something not right about it. And yeah. Every time that clown came on the scene, I mean, he could be in broad daylight and yeah. just sort of dancing around behind light poles. I remember one scene in particular. They're just looking down on a photograph, and the clown starts to appear in the city scene, and he's not doing anything super strange or evil necessarily. He's just dancing around in the street, and he has his balloons and. Yeah. You know, there's just something just weird there. about that. Yeah. yeah, just his existence in general. But the narrative does alternate between two different time periods, one where the children are young and one where they are grown adults. Uh, King originally wanted the antagonist, It, to be a troll, similar to the troll from the kid's <laughs> story, The Three Billy Goats Gruff, if you remember that one. So the story begins when a six-year-old boy named Georgie sells a paper boat with the name S.S. Georgie (laughs) down a rainy street, and then it washes into this storm drain. And Jason, I can't pass a storm drain (laughs) anywhere without looking down and seeing these two beady yellow eyes staring back at me, because that's exactly what happens in the novel, is Georgie looks down after he loses his paper boat, in the storm drain and he sees this clown and the clown starts talking to him and the character it is disguised as the clown to entice children to you know come to him right Right. so he offers georgie a balloon if he will reach into the storm drain and retrieve the paper boat that was lost initially georgie resists but he eventually gives in. He reaches into the drain. The clown becomes a monster. If you've seen the movie, I think he grows these huge oh, spiked it's, teeth. It's awful. And he just tears this poor kid's arm off and just basically kills him. And this is the first death within the book. And this takes a toll on the town of Derry. It takes a toll on the family. And it takes a toll on Georgie's older brother, Bill, who becomes a main character in the novel. Uh, a year later, the main characters, which are the seven children, including jo- Georgie's older brother, Bill, form something called the Losers Club. 
All right, so this is very much a, a com- coming of age story. Right. King writes a lot of these. Carrie also was a coming of age story. The loss of innocence, these sort of things. But during the summer, the entity it appears to each of the children in different forms. And Jason, they don't know that the other ones are seeing these things. They think it's just sort of nightmares they're having right. or hallucinations or whatever. But it comes to each of the children in different forms. To one, he's a mummy. To another, he's a fountain of blood that only children can see. Uh, he comes to one as a diseased leper, to another as drowned corpses, and famously to one as a frightening phantom of Georgie. So he comes to Bill as the little brother who was killed. But the children soon discover that it has actually been terrorizing the town for many years, and this is not a new threat. And the novel reveals that it is a being from another reality. And this is where the story gets weird. Yeah. <laughs> if you follow the movie very closely or the miniseries, I don't think they go into this part very much because it kind of goes off the rails a little bit. Uh, and it gets that's, that's the exact term a little I was too thinking, weird. Kind of, it, it gets a little bizarre. You know? <laughs> it does. So according to the novel, it is from another reality called the macroverse. All right. And I don't think they ever said macroverse <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> uh, but it nourishes itself on the fear from terrorizing the children and almost eats it like to sustain itself. Bill, the older brother of Georgie, learns that it can be defeated in a battle of wills. So the interesting thing here that was also not in the movie or in the miniseries but is in the novel is that Bill learns the secret from a giant turtle. (laughs) I told you, it gets really weird, right? Uh, Probably Franklin. Yeah, Franklin the turtle. (laughs) Franklin the turtle. (laughs) You're, you're pretty close. Yeah. Uh, the turtle's name is Maturin, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, Maturin lives in the macroverse, and Maturin is an ancient turtle that created the universe, and it's the antithesis to the it character. So they're okay. sort of, of the yin these, and yang type. The yin and yang, yeah. they're sort of these celestial beings, and they operate outside of normal reality. But it is defeated, and the children swear a blood oath to return to Derry. That's the home of the monster and where they all live if it ever resurfaces. So as you can imagine, the story shifts over into the adult perspective. And 27 years after it was defeated by the children in 1984, the child killings start up again. And the seven children, now adults, return to Derry, and they start to approach it, and they engage it, and obviously this leads to the climax of the story. And it, at this point, becomes a giant spider. <laughs> yeah, which I also thought was, was very strange. Very yeah, strange, because, yeah. I mean, because you're scared of the clown. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, like in the movie, you sort of identify it. There's some natural fear there that's yeah. transposed onto this yeah. crazy clown thing. But the giant spider is just such a shift for me, you know, and uh, I think uh, the book took some criticism as well as the movie for this exact thing because you become accustomed to this character, right? the I mean, antagonist. That's what you fear. That's what you fear. That's why you're there for, honestly. And that's why you're yeah. interested, right? Yeah. But it becomes the giant spider. Uh, Georgie's brother Bill fights his way inside the monster and destroys its heart, uh, eventually killing the monster, and this is how the movie Concludes. Now, did you go see the movie in theaters? Uh, I did. Oh, I actually went to the drive-in and watched it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I actually went to the drive-in and watched it. And it's it's very similar, I mean, to the original, you know, uh, miniseries there. Sure. Same thing, you know, uh, Pennywise becomes this this giant spider-like creature, and they're in the cave, and, and they, they literally have like a, a duel of wills. 
Uh, and that's that's sort of how it ends. So yeah. yeah, very almost identical. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, very strange, and the novel is much weirder than is the television series or the movie. And that's going to bring us to our very final topic of conversation. Jason, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about corn and the children who live there. <laughs> I didn't want novels to get all the publicity. So uh, for my final story, I actually chose one of Stephen King's short stories. It's a little tale called Children of the Corn. Children of the Corn was originally published in 1978 in a collection of short stories titled Night Shift. And while I have never actually read the short story, this movie terrified me as a child. Uh, Are there any darker or more menacing words uttered in human history than he who walks behind the rose? Yeah, this was before (laughs) he who must not be named in Harry Potter. It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's just, it's horrible. So that's the antagonist, right? He who walks behind the rose. That's how they describe yeah, him. That that is his name. He who walks behind the rose. There 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 is no further explanation of that. <laughs> it's just you know, oh, we can't upset he who walks behind the rose. And yeah, that's, yeah, that's weird. Uh, a quick summary of the movie: uh, you know, the children of a small town named Gatlin in Nebraska have murdered all the adults in the town and have begun worshiping some sort of evil presence that you know we were talking about there, uh, known only as he who walks behind the rose. Once again, King uses the concept of a stranger comes to town, uh, but in this story, he uses it in reverse. In Children of the Corn, the strangers are a married couple that stumble into town, but in this case, the strangers are innocent, and it's the town that is evil. I actually rewatched uh, this movie a few weeks ago, and the movie itself uh, doesn't hold up very well, Shannon. In terms oh, really? of uh, no, it does special not. effects and just the acting and everything. It's it's, it's pretty poor, to be honest. Is but it still scary? It's. I mean, there are parts that are a little scary, but I mean, overall, you can tell it's 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 kind of cheesy. You know, uh-huh. look, you know, thirty years later or whatever. Sure. Uh, but the story. The story itself, though, is as frightening today as it was decades ago, just the idea behind it. Uh, when I watched this as a kid, I remember asking myself, you know, could could kids really pull this off, right? right. Uh, you know, how long could this go on before just an army of adults showed up to, to reclaim the town? I mean, literally, all the adults are dead. They're in charge, and there's a decent-sized highway going through this town. Yeah. And everybody seems to be okay with that. Seems like more than this one couple would roll in and it start seems, to ask some questions. It seems like. I mean, at some point, you know, maybe some milk would be delivered or, <laughs> I mean, you know, something. Uh, so, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, how long this could go on. But I, I do remember asking myself that. Well, it is a short story, so maybe. It, yeah, maybe just went for a couple of weeks or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. I will say this for Children of the Corn. Uh, I would rather swim in an ocean with Freddy Krueger literally <laughs> riding on top of Jaws before walking into a cornfield and running into whoever or whatever he who walks <laughs> behind the rose is. <laughs> That's terrifying, man. Yeah, I, I would not do that. And with that, uh, I am ready to close the chapter on uh, Stephen King and maybe go watch Care Bears or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we need else. something to cheer us up. We need something to cheer us up. That's exactly right. So, Shannon, uh, do you have anything else you would like to add? I do not. I'd just like to thank everyone who's listening and ask if you've not done so already, please subscribe, rate the podcast, and have a great day. Take care, everyone. Thank you.